Hey guys, welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous, Season 1, The Texas Killing Fields, Episode 10. Today we will be bringing you Edward Harold, Harold Bell with the confessions of a madman. To bring you Her- Edward Harold Bell, we will have to start with Larry Dickens, who is truly a hero um, in, in our storyline. So on August 28, 1978, Larry Dean Dickens, he was a 26-year-old roughneck oil worker, a former Marine, and he had gone over to his mother's house in Pasadena to help do some yard work. His young daughter was playing outside with the neighborhood kids. There were several neighborhood kids playing in the area. Um back and forth. I think it's a typical Pasadena day where the kids would have been just kind of playing in the, um, it's a neighborhood street. So they're kind of playing in the street, going back and forth between houses, parents in different houses are kind of keeping an eye on them by either being outside doing yard work or, you know, inside with the doors open, just kind of keeping an eye on the kids outside. And so Larry's mother, is at the window she's looking at the kids playing outside and she notices that a red truck has kind of driven up and um watches the man get up out of the pickup thinking that's a little bit strange as she doesn't recognize him or his car he begins to approach the children that are out there playing and she notices immediately that he is naked from the waist down she grabs the phone gets on the phone with the police and starts calling them now you're talking at this point in time that this is a landline phone that's connected to inside so she's still inside calling and she's screaming for larry to help so larry comes running in and he sees what's going on hears her talking on the phone and runs out and confronts this man there's a little back and forth that goes on between them and the man's putting back on his pants. Larry reaches into the truck and grabs the keys from the truck to keep the man from leaving. At that point in time, the man is demanding to have his keys back. Larry is refusing. And the man goes to his truck, grabs the pistol, and proceeds to shoot Larry four times. Larry is wounded stumbling, stumbles back into the garage. His mother comes out, is grabbing him, begging the man to leave. And Larry is still holding onto those keys. Somehow in that, either the mom gave the keys to the man and says, you know, get out of here. Or, you know, maybe Larry dropped the keys and the man, you know, took the keys to run. But somehow in that, that has happened. And he, the man leaves and Larry is in his mom's arms when the man comes back into the garage with a shotgun and shoots Larry in the head point blank and kills him. So the mom runs back inside. It's trying to call the police, trying to, it's still on the line with the police screaming for help. And Larry's sister arrives home seeing the commotion. I don't know if she purposely pulled her car to try to block this man from leaving or if it's just because she's noticing, you know, all the commotion happening now with this and her brother on the, you know, the side of the garage there laying that she pulls the car in front of um, this man's truck 
stopping him from leaving that direction. So he has to back up and turn around and leave toward the end of the street. In doing that, then he is driving right into where officers are now coming forward, you know, responding to the phone call. And so knowing that this is a red pickup truck leaving the scene, they immediately turn around and start chasing this pickup. The pickup drives through the neighborhood. It's kind of a small high-speed chase. He crashes into like a fence or something um, there, gets out of his car, grabs his shotgun, and attempts to go after police with his shotgun. I think there are some reports that say a shotgun might have jammed or maybe just knew, you know, with multiple police officers pointing a gun toward him that he was really caught and that he was going to get killed, that he surrenders into their custody. They load him up in the car and bring him back to the house to have the mother and um, sister identify him. Larry is now deceased there on the scene and they identify him very upset, I'm sure. And at that point in time, police take him into custody. It's when he's taken into custody that they identify him as Edward Harold Bell. And when identifying him as Edward Harold Bell, you know, they um, certainly find out that he does have a past history of this kind of behavior of flashing. Mm -hmm. And so his actual past history of flashing goes back to 1966, where he exposed himself to young girls in the town of Sedan near Plainsville, Texas, which would be way on the other side of of Houston. This would be more um, in the... Um, what do you call that? That is that South North North side of, um, and so he he had exposed himself to girls there, spent some time in the mental hospital for that, and then in April of 1969, while going to Texas Tech, he was arrested for exposing himself to a 12 year old girl whose father was actually a police detective. He was arrested two more times during that and sent to a mental hospital. And then, um, and that was in Galveston. Yeah, he was sent in Galveston too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he had quite a long history of this um, type of behavior where he would expose himself to young girls getting out of the vehicle and walking up and exposing them. And um, so, taking into consideration some of that, he was um, he was charged with murder and then lewd acts, um, which would be the exposing himself on that day. I think he's charged with four counts of lewd acts, which would be probably the amount of children that could say that they had seen him that day. Um, He was given a $40,000 bond and he bonded out with that bond. They actually went back, though, and reset that bond. Yeah, they did that. They did. So he was out on the $40,000 bond for, I believe, about a week. And then the district attorney came back with the charges, brought him back in. He was rearrested, brought back in, and he was given a $125,000 bond. When I looked this up in the paper, they said it was because of public outcry. I don't know that a district attorney could just because the public felt unsafe, go and have the bond reconsidered. But I think probably what happened was that as the district attorney presented the charges to the grand jury, that they were looking for, instead of, instead of say like a, a, 
a second degree murder charge or a manslaughter charge, they probably upped the murder charge to the first degree murder charge. And that would have then put him at a higher bond. And so that's more in line with what possibly happened there where he gets the $125,000 bond. And that's not as easy, I guess, for him to make. And so he does use a bondsman in order to make that and then bonds out. Um, and then he does not show up for his trial, for his, for, for his court date. And um, they start looking for him and he has disappeared. So, so Bell is nowhere to be found. The bond agent is brought in to court and forced to pay the $125,000 bond. He has no ability to go after Bell's assets because Bell has cashed them all out. And so now he's out this money. The bond agent hires PIs to go private investigators to go find Bell and they hit a dead end. At this time too, doesn't Texas um, start like the most wanted list? Yeah. So at this time, just kind of like other states, they start looking at how do we track down some of these wanted offenders? How do we get the public's help out there to track down some of these wonder, wanted offenders? And so they start the Texas most wanted list. And Bell is the First person put on the Texas most wanted list. It's about five years after um, Larry Dickens was shot and killed. And Bell is their number one priority. Um, but really, even all of that exposure in Texas, having him on, you know, the every newspaper in the state for weeks on end and then every year having that list reprinted and that list is in all the police departments and sheriff's departments and everything like that to be on the lookout for these people on the list it still doesn't i mean it has there are some leads but i mean it's just it's really some wackadoodles out there calling in and saying you know they've spotted him you know in a parade or you know different things um his family was pretty extensively investigated to see if they were hiding him or knew where he possibly was. Um, you know, he did have, he did have two kids. So you can imagine what their lives were like having the bond agents representatives come up and, you know, track them down and talk to them and ask them, you know, year after year, because I mean, this guy's out a ton of money. I mean, when you think of $125,000 back then, mm -hmm. you know, he's out, a good chunk of, of money. He wants to get his money. And, um, but no, you know, there's, there's nothing out there. And along comes a small TV show called unsolved mysteries. And they decide to do an episode on him and unsolved mysteries. I think, you know, it's interesting because for a lot of us who have gotten into true crime, that's where we started. Right. You know, I was a young kid, you know, sitting on the couch with my family, you know, watching Unsolved Mysteries. And when it would come on, I mean, gosh, we didn't have that record feature or on demand or anything like that. So, you know, whatever day of the week it was, it was like Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, 7 p.m. <laughs> you know, the whole family's out there. Well, sitting. in this episode, too, with Bill, with the Unsolved Mysteries, Matthew McConaughey actually plays Larry Dickens. Yes. <laughs> so that was pretty interesting to see. 
Yeah, if you uh, if you have a chance, look up that episode because uh, Matthew McConaughey is there, like half shirtless, you know, mowing the lawn, <laughs> and uh, and so. But I mean, immediately when we watched it, I was like, I've seen this. I remember, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and you know, ninety three. I would have been. Well, I don't want to age myself, but you know. 55 in high school <laughs> so, um, and uh and so you know watching it i was like oh my gosh i've 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 watched this before i can remember you know seeing this and um so the unsolved mysteries comes out and it's it's in the great unsolved mysteries fashion of being dramatic and showing what happens and and explaining you know the the crime and and you know the ha- interviewing um, Larry's family, his sister, his mother, um, and having them there telling the story of, of Larry and what a hero he was. Right. And which is what we, when we were doing our research mm-hmm. for this, I was like, this guy is really a hero because he's the one, even though he lost his life that has brought this guy. And yeah. I mean, because if, You know, as we get farther into Bell and I mean, even just the crimes that that we know that Bell committed of the exposure and, you know, those types of things, you know, it's to to have this man, you know, step forward and put himself in harm's way to make sure that this guy was caught and taken off the street. I mean, yeah, he's the true hero of this and, and his family. And Bell was doing that flashing and indecent exposure for years. For years. Before this happened. Mm-hmm. Years. So when you look at Bell's age and then the 1960s arrest, Bell is basically starting this behavior in his early 20s. Mm-hmm. So, um, but through that, it, you know, it, it generated a huge amount of leads. Um, there are two very concrete leads that come in one in the form of a letter with several pictures that say, here's this guy down in, uh, Panama, who's a boat captain. And I, you know, was down there and here's a picture of him. And then another one is I rented a boat from this guy in Panama and his name is Wally. And this is, this is the place that he is in Panama city, Panama city, Panama, Panama. (laughs) Morgan and I have a fun joke about that because (laughs) when we first were doing the research on this, Morgan actually thought that he was in Florida. (laughs) So that's just a little, little fun that we always have when I finally looked at her and she's like, well, he's so close by. Why didn't nobody know he was there? And I was like, (laughs) For 15 years, really? It's a whole other country. <laughs> so just to have a little fun with the podcast, we've given Morgan a little geography lesson mm-hmm. where <laughs> Panama City, Panama is. Um, so in 1993, he is finally arrested by the Panama City police and he is held. At the point in time that he's arrested and held, he does fight extradition, stating that he is not Edward Harold Bell, that he is Wally, you know, a retired citizen who has come down there and from the state of Texas and uh, doesn't even know who this Bell guy is. It's very interesting because when people reported him 
in Panama, in the Panama area, they actually talked about when they had met him that he was a big Texas A&M supporter and, you know, that he was still trying to follow that. So, I mean, he really kept his, his roots right where they were. I mean, he was still, you know, following what was going on in the area as far as, you know, football and um, that kind of thing from his alma mater. Um, so he is arrested and put on trial during his trial. Um, well, he's arrested, fights extradition. Sorry, skipped a little step there. And then eventually he is extradited back to the United States. When he's extradited back to the United States, um, Larry Dickens' mother and sister are actually there to watch him be brought in, you know, to, to see that. And they did comment in that Unsolved Mysteries, um, episode two how when he got off the plane he was almost smug and arrogant mm -hmm. you know almost like what you know you can't touch me you know yeah. what i mean almost like that and uh you know they had 15 years of not knowing where this guy was well and i've i've been a little curious about that i mean I, one of the things that you know the more and more that i look into some of what bell talks about and kind of confesses to and stuff like that is this is a guy who is definitely um, a master manipulator. He is one of those type of people who is a narcissist. The world revolves around me. And when you think to yourself about, you know, the true kind of feeling of a narcissist, it's always that this isn't going to be a big deal. I can get out of this if it is a big deal and it's not going to be that bad. And that's kind of what, when I was looking at the $40,000 bond and he doesn't jump bond, but then when it goes up to 125,000, he suddenly jumps bond. I thought to myself, you know, when he was on that $40,000 bond and he's staying around, I don't think he thought they were going to get him. I think he thought he could talk his way out of it. You know, that the, that he could go in there basically saying, you know, that, that, he, he was in the right. Maybe self-defense right. or something like that. Which is what he claims. Mm -hmm. At his trial, he claims self-defense. But I think when they upped the charges and charged him with that first degree, that's when he starts to get to the point where he realizes that he might not be able to talk his way out of this. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's when he jumps bond. Right. Um, but before, I think he really thought he could talk his way out of it. But, yeah, so the way that um, – when he's charged, the way that he does basically try to fight these charges is he says that it was self-defense, that Larry Dickens came out of the house, confronted him, um, assaulted him, and he, that he was in fear of his life. And that, you know, because Larry Dickens had taken the keys, he couldn't flee. And so his only choice then was to shoot him. But when you look at you know, them that he doesn't just shoot him. He then goes back to the car, grabs the weapon, comes back in and confronts him again and, and shoots him again. I mean, there's, there's really no, to me, there's no way that you can, can say that that's a self-defense claim. No. So, but, um, he is convicted and he's sentenced to 70 years. So in, he would have been eligible for parole in 2013. Um, and, um, he does actually speak at his sentencing, not at his trial, but he does speak at his sentencing. 
And um, at his sentencing, he stated that he was a formal Eagle Scout um, and that he was that he played in the band at Texas A&M and that he was a good problem. He was a good man who just had a problem with flashing. And that if he didn't have this problem with flashing, that Larry would be alive and that he because he wouldn't have been on the streets. So but that he had this problem with flashing. So he says, you know, but I gave that up while I was in Panama. I quit flashing. I quit doing that. And so, you know, I doubt it. all should be forgiven. Um, and uh, I doubt it. He is then put away. No, I, I doubt it. I mean, come on. He was a serial flasher. You know, I mean, you can't, I don't know. I, I think that urge was there. He probably did it. I mean, he was married, right? When they found him down there too. Or he had a girlfriend. Um, I think she identified herself definitely as his wife. Yeah. And so she was young too. She was young. Uh -huh. She was young, but she, what worries me about that, not as, not as much about her age. I think she was like, um, 18 or, or 19 when they met down there, he would have been in his late forties. But what really worries me about that was that she had a young daughter, mm. you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, she had a, a little girl who would have been, um, a couple of years old. And so that's, that's what's concerning to me about that. All right. So Gretchen, um, before this arrest, what was going on in his previous life? Like up until this point, or I guess up until he flees. Up until he flees. So um, before, what we do know is that he was he was married, um, and then he had the the two kids. Um, after he's arrested, um, I think he's arrested um, sometime in the early seventies, and um, his first wife divorces him. So it's after the 1969 arrest, he's arrested again for flashing, um, again, sentenced to a mental hospital and his first wife goes ahead and files for divorce and she takes the kids and leaves. At that point in time, um, he spends some time in a mental hospital in Galveston. Um, and so that's where he meets 17 year old Deborah Ellen Fleming and he marries her in 1970 when she's 20 years old. They live in Galveston off of Olutz Bay um, for, for a little while. Um, and he does quite a few different things. You know, um, he invests in a surf shop. He is kind of a mechanic and works on boats. Um, he does some tours. So one of the interesting things is he's invested in a place called, um, in a surf shop on Avenue S with a guy named Doug, uh, prunes and the, um, at that point in time, this is a surf shop that some of the victims that we have talked about in earlier cases, were possibly known to be at. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, when we talk about the kind of the surf crowd and the surf girls and stuff like that, there is certainly a connection. We also know that um, he bought a, uh, a red caboose or a travel trailer and painted it like a red caboose. He kept that on several different 
pieces of property. And one of the pieces of property that he actually had that on was out in Dickinson near the El Rancho, which is, you know, a property that that was talked about in um, Brooks Bracewell and Georgina Greer's case, right. you know, so he was in the Dickinson area at that point in time. But the other thing is that he also had that red caboose out in Alta Loma. Right. You know, and, um, and we have explored, you know, that there are some connections to cases with the Alta Loma area. Um, and so we do know that he was he was in Alta Loma for a period of time. We also know that he did, as a child, spend some time in Alta Loma too. So he's pretty familiar with the Alta Loma area. Um, and then one of the other things that we know is that in 1974, he was arrested in Galveston for exposing himself to two girls. When he did that, they ran and he chased after them in his Volkswagen. In that arrest, we find out that he worked for a Volkswagen dealership in Texas City. So that, you know, does kind of put him in the Texas City area. Um, it puts him in all these locations. Right. And that er that arrest does seem to kind of send him back again to kind of, well, that arrest, I don't actually think um, they actually do much with. I think it's just he's arrested. Um he may, he's charged with a moral violation of like morals or something like that. And um, when I found that in the newspaper, it seems to be almost like it's a petty offense. So it's very strange. Um, but one of the things that, you know, I, I've kind of come across is, you know, when we think about the laws today, and I know we know that the laws, you know, were different at some other different times. But when you look at like, these laws for exposing yourself and and stuff there are certain wording in some of these laws that were back then that happened where people had to either express or say certain things like they were scared or they were fearful and so if that is not present like if these kids just kind of ran you know but they were like oh we thought it was funny or you know think of how kids you know would feel uncomfortable, especially being presented by law enforcement, or maybe parents didn't want their kids involved. If they're not expressing the things in that law that need to ex be expressed, then the police can't go forward with charges, right. even if they think that there's something seriously wrong with this individual. It's like the sexual assault law in the 1970s in the state of Texas. At that per point in time, you, if you were a wife of a person, you couldn't claim sexual assault. You couldn't say, I'm his, I'm his wife, but I told him no, and he sexually assaulted me anyway. Not like today. If you were a wife and your husband wanted to do that, you didn't have that ability to say, no, he raped me. Mm -hmm. um, but even worse, in that law, victims had to prove that they fought back. Not that they said no, but they physically fought back. So he is actually charged with raping a mental patient. Um, he goes to the Galveston hospital and picks up a mental patient, gets her in his, his car and actually rapes her in his vehicle. And he's charged with that. But basically because she's saying, you know, he, he did this to me and I just kind of like froze. I didn't know what to do. That's not sexual assault under the law at that point. Right. 
even though in today's language, it absolutely would be. But under Texas law, if she can't prove that, like, she fought back, she, like, kicked him, you know, bit him, you know, scratched him, did those types of things, then it's not sexual assault. And then the other part of that is that she's got to prove that he physically also like forced her. So there has to be some sort of physical like beating or marks on her to show that she was putting up a fight. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, resist. Yes. You know, no matter how the law enforcement officers would have felt about it, their hands still would have been tied by the law. Right. And, um, and so that's the hard thing with some of these cases where we, you know, find that he is, um, obviously known by police to do that stuff. Obviously known by police. You know, when he rapes that 17 year old girl from the hospital, he drops her back off casually too. Yes. That gets me every time when I think about it. Well, and she's like, okay, have a nice day. And so, and that's some of that narcissist thing, Mm -hmm. right? You know, because he's questioned by police. Yeah. And he says she's my girlfriend. So, you know, what what I did with her was was perfectly acceptable as a girlfriend-boyfriend relationship. And then they're looking at her, and it's like she's in the mental hospital. So, you know. She's crazy. So, yeah. I mean, I mean you know, really. You know, and so you want to be frustrated a little bit with law enforcement and, and some of that, you know, saying, gosh, why didn't they do their job? Why didn't they get him when he raped this girl or when he chased these two girls down with his car? And then maybe, you know, Larry would be alive today. I don't know that they had the ability to. As much as they may have wanted to, I don't know how that they had the ability to. But one of my questions has kind of been... Was he not on the radar? I would, you would think. Because we know what happens later. And I think, you know, we're going to cover a lot more of, of where some of this goes and, and, you know, why he seems to be the number one suspect for so many of these murders out there now. But at the same time, I just have to say, I can't understand why in 1971 he wasn't picked up and questioned. Mm-hmm. That's, I guess that's where, you know, because what we do know is that they were looking at known flashers and suspects who had that type of behavior. And he is known to them in that time period. He is, you know, yeah. and so that's, that's, I guess, where I get a little confused over why he was never right and then you have you know you do have the tie to the to the shop because i mean you know you have you have the girls that go missing you know they have the ties to the surf shop and stuff and so you're coming in you're asking the surf shop have you seen these girls do you know anything about them and at no point in time are you looking at doug who owns the surf shop and saying okay what's doug's past history right but you know that Doug has a partner. And so you're not asking yourself, okay, maybe we should look at their past history. And Galveston, yes, is a large, you know, I think we said there were like 70,000 people there then or something like that. So, I mean, that's a large area, relatively, you know, smaller police force. But I do find it weird that, you know, that this guy wasn't on their radar. Um, and so that's kind of, that's kind of it. We do know that he travels um, when he leaves, he, um, in 90, when he leaves, when he 
jumps on and leaves. You know, we do know that he does spend some time living on a sailboat in Mexico before he gets down to Panama City and then has, you know, the um, third wife that he meets there. Mm -hmm. Well, and Bell was also arrested in Louisiana for flashing, too. Right. So he was. I mean, that may not come up on the radar here in Texas at that time, but. Yeah, I so mean, we he know was doing it other places too. Yeah, we do know that um, he did uh, get arrested in Greta, Louisiana. We also know that, um, as far as his jobs, I mean, we do know that he was a mechanic. Um, so it's possible that he, you know, had some connections with, you know, the oil fields and that type of things. Um, but we also know that, you know, the car dealership. So he did have access to a numerous amount of vehicles. Sure. We do know that he drove a van for a period of time or had a van for a period of time. We know that he had the um, property that he was traveling back and forth to and, you know, was known to live out in different areas. Um, so there, there are certain things that, that make him look like a suspect, you know, we do know about the arrest in, in 1972 where he was in Louisiana. And, um, and so these things kind of, you know, he, but he's not really doing time. He's not really doing jail time for these crimes. No, either. he's not. So he's not, I mean, he's just out. And I, the narcissist in him is probably like, it's almost like me. I'm getting away with it. They can't get me. Well, and I, you know, yeah, it's I'm not doing like, anything wrong, you know? Yeah, it's almost like it's feeding it. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing anything wrong. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to get caught. So then if I do, they're not going to do anything. Which he's kind of right about that. Yep. So he's kind of right about that. And he's Um, probably talked his way out of a lot of this stuff. You know, with these cops too. Well, and I think, you know, when you look at the amount of incidences that we know about, you have to say that there's quite a bit more that we don't know about. Oh, sure. You know, there are certainly those incidences where he probably would have seen kids, you know, and maybe adults weren't around. And so they ran home and said, this happened. But who are, who are you going to call at that point? You know, your kid's trying to subscribe to something that happened. And even if they did call, I mean, from Runaways, we've seen one paragraph taken. Right. So if you call up the police department back in, you know, 1972 and you say, my kid saw a guy jump out of a truck, you know, half clothed and he came home and told me about it. Does it even get on a desk of a police officer to ask more questions? Do we go out there and find out what kind of truck do we do we do more investigating or is it just like, yeah, that happens all the time. That's terrible. It just sounds so terrible. Okay, so after he goes to prison, does he just silently sit there and do his time, or does he reminisce about so it's flashing, (laughs) his days of flashing? That's a good question. So after Bell goes to prison. Um, he's there for a few years and remains pretty much quiet, getting used to, you know, his, his new digs, I guess. Um, but, um, no, in 1998, he starts contacting Harris County and Galveston County with a series of letters, um, claiming and confessing to the murders of many of the young women that we have talked about 
in these cases before. Um, those letters are have not been released by those departments. Um, you know, I think bits and pieces of them over time have kind of been released. But as far as I know, the full letters are part of a still ongoing open and active investigation, even though they have said publicly both of those counties, or at least Galveston County, has been very vocal with the fact that they do not believe that he is responsible for those crimes. But then I think maybe feeling a little ignored, you know, like he wasn't getting the attention. And again, narcissist. Right. You know, so. That he rightfully deserved. You know. Um, Then he begins to contact the Houston Chronicle. And at that point in time, obviously, what he writes and what he does there, that is you know, very public, you know, he contacts them. There are several interviews, um, great interviews. You know, I think that um, the interviewer um, Olson actually does an incredible job of going in there and, and listening to him and trying to get more information and trying to delve into these cases and, you know, give these families some really good um, possibility of closure. And, then he he plays pretty much a cat and mouse game there. You know, he'll he'll say something and then he'll take it back and he'll say something and then he'll take it back. And I think we'll talk a lot more about that in the upcoming episode. But, you know, because we want to give it the time that it needs to really look at a lot of what he has to say. But he, he basically, you know, he enjoys enjoys what he's doing. You know, and you can tell. I mean, you can watch those interviews and tell that this is a guy who, in giving those interviews, is absolutely enjoying it. Enjoying it. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And he likes to give bits and pieces of information and then mislead bits and pieces and then claim he didn't say that. And then, you know, she goes back and forth and says, well, you did, you know, and and so there's a little bit of a silence for a while there where, you know, he's getting ignored. And then in 2017 happens the A&E episode, which is, you know, the 11 who went to heaven, um, which is the in-depth kind of um, documentary into Edward Harold Bell being the serial killer that is on the loose in Galveston County from 1971 up until Larry Dickens stops him in 1978. And then they go a little bit farther because Fred Page, who was Galveston County detective gets involved there too. And they go all the way to Panama to try to track down information and to see, you know, whether or not he was involved in any disappearances and unsolved crimes. And, you know, I think that, if anybody out there wants to take a look at that, I, I know you can actually view that for, I think, pretty much for free. It's on the A&E website. It's a fascinating documentary. Um, some of what is done there, you know, I think is is really great. Some, I think, you know, there's a lot. It's from their point of view. It's from their point of view. You know, they have one suspect and only one suspect and the information that they're bringing is information that only ties mm-hmm. that suspect. So, you know, for me, I don't, I don't necessarily know that I want to, 
to say that because Belle is in the right place at the right time and, right. you know, is is a sick, well, twisted individual that he did this. And I think that's also why we kind of held off for a while, even uh -huh. bringing him in, is because we wanted our listeners to hear other right. other sides of it, all sides of it, maybe. You know, we're not gearing towards one person or another. Mm -hmm you know, suspects or individuals that are involved. Well, and we're not police detectives, so I think, True. you know. That's, <laughs> well, you know. Um, well, you know, when we started this, I thought he did everything. So, you know. Yeah. yeah. And but as we move forward, no way, I don't think so. I definitely think, you know, in the next episode, that'll be a lot of what we talk about. Mm -hmm. Did he, could he, was he in the right place? You know, what What makes sense here? And uh, and that's kind of what I'm excited about. I mean, we've held off on waiting that. And and I think it's been important to hold off on that, too, because we wanted people to get to know the victims, too, and to get to know, you know, what was going on in the area and what was going on at the time, too. And so I'm, I'm hoping that we've given everybody that. But then I think this is an important person to cover. Um an important one to look at. And then I think, you know, for our listeners, it really needs to be their decision. I'm one of those type of people who, when I listen to podcasts and I hear different things, I then go out and start to look for, you know, other things to fill in the holes and the pieces. I always need to kind of feel like I have a whole broad picture. I'm hoping that we're giving that, you know, that, that people are getting that broader view. Right. So, so where are we headed next? All right. So, um, well, as always, thanks for joining us and listening to us. Um, you know, always reach out to us on Facebook, Bodies in the Bayous. Um, if you have any questions, I know that's a lot to, you know, listen to today. So maybe we'll have some follow-up questions there. Well, I, we love listeners' questions. Mm -hmm. I think we are absolutely delighted every time we get somebody who contacts us, they um, contact us sometimes on messenger on Facebook and, you know, we're delighted to hear from people. And, and so it's, it's kind of nice. So if you have questions, let us know, or if you think there's a case that we should be looking at that falls in this area, please let us know because as much research as we do, we can't find everything. Right. Um, and our next episode is going to cover the confession from Bell. Um, and what we're going to do is see what can be proven and what can't. Um, or was he just bored? Or did he actually do it? You know, does he claim all this? And it's actually true. And then I think one of the last things probably just to end with is that Harold Bell did die in prison in 2019. And so he has he has passed. So we're not going to get any more answers out of him at this point. Right. You know, I think he's had the final word on some of this. Narcissist. 